Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchange's World News Roundup for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Let's get right into it. There's a couple of anniversaries on August 1st, 1798. This is the anniversary of the Battle of the Nile, one of a number of uh, important battles that took place during Napoleon's campaign in Egypt and points east. This one was a naval battle involving the French fleet, uh, which had run and hid uh, at Aboukir Bay, not really on the Nile. It's a bit of a misnomer to call it the Battle of the Nile. Uh, but near the Nile, Be Nile Delta, they were hiding from the British fleet, which uh, unfortunately for Napoleon found them. Uh, and uh, Admiral Nelson, Lord Nelson, uh, destroyed effectively the French fleet and left Napoleon without any naval support, which really doomed his expedition, which had only just gotten started a few days earlier, a couple weeks earlier, uh, really doomed it to failure uh, almost before it, it really got got underway. Uh, Napoleon stuck around for a while, made tried to gamely sort of uh, make something of his campaign, uh, but his ultimate uh, defeat in the siege of Acre uh, in uh, modern-day Israel was the the end. He really he realized that there was no going, no continuing on further, uh, and eventually, of course, made his way back to France, where uh, things kind of picked up for him uh, in a in a better way. Good for him, you know. He deserves uh, deserved it. Uh, on August first, nineteen twenty seven, the Nanchang uprising marked the start of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, it was a direct response to the Shanghai massacre of April twelfth, in which Kuomintang forces purged Chinese Communist Party members from their ranks. Uh, and killed thousands of them, although the casualty figures are disputed. Uh, in this case, a CCP army captured Nanchang, home of the Revolutionary Committee of the Chinese Nationalist Party, which was one of several, this was one of several CCP uprisings around the country. Realizing that they couldn't hold the city against a counterattack, the communists withdrew on August 5th and undertook what became known as the Little Long March south to Guangdong province. Uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army dates its founding to this uprising, so it is a somewhat important historical marker. On to the news in the Middle East. In Syria, armed gunmen attacked a military convoy in Hama province overnight, killing at least five soldiers and wounding another four. At least nine of the attackers, who were almost certainly Islamic State fighters, were also killed or wounded, according to local media. In Yemen, militants attacked a group of fighters from the Southern Armed, Southern Armed Forces, one of several militias aligned with Yemen's Southern Transitional Council in Abyan province on Tuesday morning, killing at least five people. There's been no claim of responsibility, but consensus appears to be that this was an al-Qaeda operation. The Saudi government, meanwhile, has decided to sock another $1.2 billion into the notional Yemeni government's bank account. Their aim, according to the AP, is, quote, to help stabilize Yemeni food prices, uh, address the country's budget deficit, and support salary payments, end quote. Leaving aside the likelihood of the, that a large portion of this money is going to wind up in the pockets of various senior Yemeni officials rather than being put toward any of these purposes, one wonders why the Saudis didn't think to do this before they decided to spend seven-ish years pulverizing most of Yemen. Maybe an improvement in Yemeni's material conditions would have forestalled the war altogether. Uh, but don't mind me, I'm just thinking out loud. In Israel-Palestine, a Palestinian man allegedly opened fire on a crowd of people in the West Bank settlement of Male Adumim on Tuesday. Hope I'm not butchering that too badly, wounding six people before being shot and killed by a police officer. Hamas issued a statement praising the shooter, but did not take responsibility for his actions. 
In Saudi Arabia, the Biden administration appears to have resumed its pursuit of normalizing Saudi-Israeli relations. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is the latest senior Biden administration official to press that case in Saudi Arabia. Uh, But over at her newsletter, Laura Rosen reports that the Saudis are asking for something, a binding U.S.-Saudi defense treaty, that they know they can't get because they don't really want to talk about normalization at this point. I'll read you a, a bit of her piece. Several regional security experts say the United States is unlikely to extend the Saudi kingdom such a treaty-type security guarantee. Some further suggest that Saudi Arabia does not expect it to and is asking for the moon essentially as a stalling technique, as the Middle East Institute's Firas Maksad put it. I, uh, quote, I have the sense that there's unrealistic expectations on both sides, end quote, Maksad said on a virtual panel on prospects for Israel-Saudi normalization hosted by the Center for the National Interest on Thursday, July 27th. Quote, and the reason for that is that this process right now and where we are in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and the Saudis is driven by narrow political interests and agendas and timelines rather than the political reality on the ground, end quote. Uh, I'll leave it there. There's more. I have a little bit longer excerpt in the written newsletter. And uh, you can always, uh, of course, I would urge you to, to read Laura's work. She's uh, she's quite good uh, for, for more context to this. But the upshot is that the Saudis are really not prepared to talk about normalization, but they don't want to just say no. So the idea being that they're asking for something they know they can't get uh, as a way to put things off. Uh, In Iran, the Iranian government announced on Tuesday that the country is effectively closing for business on Wednesday and Thursday due to extreme heat. Banks, schools, and government offices will be closed out of concern for possible heat exhaustion. Temperatures in Tehran are currently exceeding 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 37.8 degrees Celsius. And the southern city of Ahvaz hit 122 degrees or 50 degrees Celsius on Tuesday. So, uh, you know, it's all very normal and and, and good uh, climate news as ever. In Asia, in Pakistan, government uh, or gunmen, excuse me, attacked a polio vaccination team outside the Pakistani city of Quetta on Tuesday, killing two police officers assigned as security. There's been no claim of responsibility, but the nature of the target strongly suggests that the attackers were Islamists of some variety, either Pakistani Taliban or TTP or Islamic State. Speaking of Islamic State, that group has claimed responsibility for a suicide bombing that killed at least 56 people in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Sunday. That death toll has risen steadily since the attack and may rise still further. The target was a rally held by Jamiat Ulema-e-Islam, Fazl, uh, the Fazl branch of that party. This is a hardline Islamist party that officially, at least, rejects violence. IS cited the party's support for democracy as the justification for killing all those people. In the Maldives, the Biden administration on Tuesday blacklisted 20 Maldivian citizens and 29 companies over alleged ties to Islamic State. One of the individuals is already in Maldivian custody over his alleged role in the attempted assassination of former President Mohamed Nasheed in 2021. In Myanmar, that country's ruling junta extended its current state of emergency for at least another six months on Monday, officially putting the kibosh on elections that had been nominally at least scheduled for some time this month. The junta hadn't made any obvious preparations for elections, uh, so this only formalizes what was already pretty apparent. The country's security situation is not exactly conducive to voting at present, with the junta struggling to subdue ethnic and anti-coup rebels in multiple regions. In Africa and Senegal, at least two people were killed and five more wounded on Tuesday when seven hooded individuals 
boarded a public bus in Dakar and threw a Molotov cocktail at passengers. This may have been a simple robbery or random act of violence, but it took place amid renewed political tension after Senegalese authorities brought new charges against opposition leader Usman Sonko over the weekend. Sanko was convicted a few weeks ago of the relatively minor charge of corrupting youth, but these new charges include heavyweight allegations that he's conspired to uh, commit terrorism uh, and to uh, orchestrate an insurrection. Uh, Sanko has been taken into custody and his Patriots for Senegal, of Senegal rather for Work Ethics and Fraternity Party has been dissolved, sparking major protests by its supporters. At least two people have died in unclear circumstances uh, amid demonstrations in the city of Ziguinchor. I hope I didn't mangle that too badly, where Sanko serves as mayor, and that may just be the beginning. In Niger, that country's new military junta has begun to round into shape as former Presidential Guard Commander Abdurrahman Tiani, previously known as Omar Chiani, before he corrected everyone, declared himself Niger's head of state in a televised address on Friday. Tiani cited Niger's deteriorating security situation as the reason for his decision to oust former President Mohamed Bazoum using language that after similar coups in Burkina Faso and Mali over the past three years, sounds more like military coup boilerplate jargon than a real grievance. A still circulating rumor suggests that Bazoum was about to fire Tiani, and that, more than any real or perceived security crisis, may have been the main motivator behind the coup. Leaders of the economic community of West African states decided on Sunday to impose sanctions against the members of Niger's junta while giving them a week to remove themselves from power and restore Bazoum's government. ECOWAS is threatening to undertake a military intervention akin to the one the group made in the Gambia in 2017. You'll note that ECOWAS did not intervene to restore the former governments of either Burkina Faso or Mali after those coups. Uh, and to put it bluntly, that's because neither of those countries would be as easy to invade as the Gambia. The threat of an invasion rings hollow in this case as well, if for no other reason than that ECOWAS just doesn't function cohesively enough to pull it off. Uh, you should note that both the Burkina Bay and Malian juntas have threatened to support Tiani's junta militarily, raising the specter of a full-blown regional war should ECOWAS actually decide to invade. Internationally, the French government has already begun evacuating its citizens and other European, nation, European Union nationals from Niger. That could suggest some sort of military intervention is forthcoming. On the other hand, it could also simply suggest that Paris knows how this story will unfold with Burkina Faso and Mali as models and is trying to get its people out ahead of any expected anti-French violence. Indeed, it may already be too late for that as a group of Hunta supporters mobbed the French embassy in Niamey over the weekend. Uh, the U.S. government is threatening aid cuts, but it still won't call what happened last week a coup because of the automatic aid cuts that designation would trigger. Uh, don't believe your lying eyes. Believe what the U.S. government says is a coup or not. The U.S. military has around 1,100 personnel stationed in Niger on various surveillance and counterterrorism missions. Ukrainian officials are accusing Russia of having orchestrated the coup. There's a novel idea. There is no evidence of this, but if you still view the Wagner Group as a Russian asset, then you've undoubtedly noticed that Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin praised the coup plotters over the weekend and offered his firm services, I'm sure, out of the goodness of his heart. 
Molly's junta has embraced Wagner's counterinsurgency assistance, which has had no measurable effect on Molly's insurgency other than to increase the frequency of human rights violations, while the Burkina Bay junta has at least so far kept Wagner at arm's length. Finally, the coup does not appear to have caused any immediate problems in terms of the global supply of uranium, of which Niger provides around 5%. Long term, however, there could be some impact in this re- uh, regard. In the Central African Republic, unspecified gunmen attacked a village in the northern CAR's Bamingi, Bamingui Bangoran prefecture on Monday again. Sorry if I butchered that. Killing at least 13 civilians. Uh, AFP is describing the attackers as rebels, but as far as I can tell, there's no specific indication as to their identity. In Europe, uh, in Russia, the Icelandic government on Tuesday suspended work at its Moscow embassy. This was a decision Icelandic officials announced back in June, citing the, well, everything that's happened in Russia's relationship with most of the rest of Europe since the invasion of Ukraine began. They noted on Tuesday that they were not cutting off relations with Russia and would resume embassy operations as soon as circumstances dictate. Iceland is the first European country to take this step and could, in theory, wind up being a trendsetter. In Ukraine, officials claimed on Monday that their forces had recaptured some 15 square kilometers of territory in their counteroffensive over the previous week. That would put them at over 200 square kilometers seized since the counteroffensive began in June. On Tuesday, the Interior Minister of Ukraine, Igor Klimenko, announced via telegram that security forces had prevented, quote, an enemy saboteur reconnaissance group, end quote, from crossing into Ukraine's Chernihiv Oblast. Apparently, four people tried to enter Ukraine from Russia, but were driven back, uh, whether this was a saboteur reconnaissance group or just four people trying to enter Ukraine is unclear. Russian officials, meanwhile, are claiming that they foiled an overnight Ukrainian sea drone attack on military and civilian ships in the Black Sea. The Ukrainians are denying that they targeted any civilian ships, but haven't entirely denied that they attempted some kind of attack. The Saudi government will reportedly host a round of Ukrainian peace talks later this week. And I say peace talks in that kind of hesitating way because this event will not actually involve any peace talks since one of the two belligerents, uh, namely Russia, will not be invited. Attendees will instead uh, discuss Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's peace proposal. The aim isn't really to further a peace agenda so much as it is to convince the Saudis that Ukraine and its Western backers are taking them seriously as geopolitical actors, with the hope of bringing them a bit closer to the Ukrainian point of view on the war. A few other non-aligned governments like Brazil and India will likely also attend and be wooed by Kiev and company. In Poland, the Polish government on Tuesday deployed military units to the country's eastern border after accusing the Belarusian military of violating Polish airspace. According to the Poles, Belarusian military helicopters crossed over into Poland before returning to Belarus. Belarusian officials denied that any airspace violation took place. Tensions between the two countries are already high because of the Wagner Group's relocation to Belarus, something that Polish officials regard as a threat. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has gleefully tweaked Warsaw over Wagner's presence in his country, contributing to the unpleasantness. 
In Italy, Italian Defense Minister Guido Crosetto suggested in an interview published on Sunday that the Italian government is looking for a way to quit China's Belt and Road Initiative. Italy joined the BRI in 2019 and remains its only European participant. Crosetto des- described that decision as, quote-unquote, atrocious in the interview and complained that the result had has been lopsided, increasing Chinese exports to Italy without uh, boosting Italian exports to China. In the Americas, in Costa Rica, authorities are reportedly investigating President Rodrigo Chavez and several other government officials on allegations of influence peddling. The case is rooted in a claim by a Costa Rican businessman that members of Chavez's cabinet interfered with his divorce because they had a favorable disposition toward his now ex-wife. Seems a little petty, but what do I know? Chavez is already under investigation for allegedly using an official trip to Europe as justification for making a personal trip to Latvia, which is his wife's home country. So uh, great things happening. Uh, We're making Costa Rica great again, apparently. Uh, In Haiti, a long-rumored multinational intervention in that country looks like it may actually become a reality, with the Biden administration reportedly set to introduce a United Nations Security Council resolution authorizing the mission in the coming days. The breakthrough came over the weekend when Kenyan Foreign Minister Alfred Mutua declared that his country was prepared to lead the operation and to provide some 1,000 Kenyan police officers to help support and train Haitian personnel. U.S. officials have been pushing for an intervention but have been looking for another country to take the official lead, having failed to convince Canada to do it. Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry has been requesting an intervention for months, but despite Haiti's dire internal security situation, it's unclear how the Haitian population feels about this plan, uh, given their equally dire past experience with foreign interventions. The reputation that Kenyan police have for brutality may add to Haitian concerns. And in the United States, finally, in light of the release of the new film Oppenheimer, which I have to say I saw and and enjoyed, uh, I I understand some of the criticisms that I've seen of it, but just as an experience in in going to the movies and seeing a film, I thought it was well done. Uh, Tom Dispatch's uh, William Hartung takes a look at the robust industry that has grown up around the U.S. nuclear weapons program. I'll read you a few paragraphs of his piece. The Manhattan Project Oppenheimer directed was one of the largest public works efforts ever undertaken in American history. Though the Oppenheimer film focuses on Los Alamos, it quickly came to include far-flung facilities across the United States. At its peak, the project would employ 130,000 workers, as many as in the entire U.S. auto industry at the time. According to nuclear expert Stephen Schwartz, author of Atomic Audit, the seminal work on the financing of U.S. nuclear weapons programs, through the end of 1945, the Manhattan Project cost nearly $38 billion in today's dollars while helping spawn an enterprise that has since cost taxpayers an almost unimaginable $12 trillion for nuclear weapons and related programs. And the costs never end. The Nobel Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, reports that the U.S. spent $43.7 billion on nuclear weapons last year alone and a new Congressional Budget Office report suggests that another $756 billion will go into those deadly armaments in the next decade. Private contractors now run the nuclear warhead complex and build nuclear delivery vehicles. They range from Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Lockheed Martin to lesser-known firms like BWX Technologies and Jacobs Engineering, all of which split billions of dollars in contracts from the Pentagon for the production of nuclear delivery vehicles and the Department of Energy for nuclear warheads. To keep the gravy train running, ideally in perpetuity, those contractors also spend millions lobbying decision makers. Even universities.
universities have gotten into the act. Both the University of California and Texas A&M are part of the consortium that runs the Los Alamos Nuclear Weapons Laboratory. The American Warhead Complex is a vast enterprise with major facilities in California, Missouri, Nevada, New Mexico, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. And nuclear-armed submarines, bombers, and missiles are produced or based in California, Connecticut, Georgia, Louisiana, North Dakota, Montana, Virginia, Washington State, and Wyoming. Add in nuclear subcontractors, and most states host at least some nuclear weapons-related activities. And such beneficiaries of the nuclear weapons industry are far from silent when it comes to debating the future of nuclear spending and policymaking. Uh, again, recommend you click the link and read the whole piece. Uh, on that happy note, uh, we will call it uh, a night. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter and uh, sticking with me through uh, what has been a rather tumultuous period and will probably continue to be somewhat tumultuous moving forward. Um, I wish there was something I could do to uh, prevent that, but I think it probably is unavoidable. I will try to minimize disruptions moving forward, but uh, there's only so much I think I will be able to do. Uh, until next time, oh, and, and also obviously a, a uh, particular thanks to foreign exchange subscribers, especially you paid, ex paid subscribers who make this newsletter possible. Uh, with that, until next time, take care, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.